Hello and welcome to the A-Form show. My name is Alan George and thank you very much for tuning in. Each week we sit across from thought leaders and change makers in the architecture and design space of the GCC. We dive deep into their experiences both professionally and personally and share their valuable insight as to what makes them tick. Our goal is to add value to your day and help you navigate your own personal creative journey. Finally, the opinions and the views of the guest speakers are that of their own. They do not necessarily represent the views and the opinions of the show or the host. Hello and welcome to the A-Form show. This week we are joined by Duncan Denley from Desert Inc. Over the last two decades, Duncan has successfully delivered multiple projects across the region and has literally transformed the design landscape of the city. He is a champion of local flora and fauna, and this can be best seen in action at the Sustainability Pavilion within the Expo 2020. So without further ado, let's get into it. Good afternoon, Duncan. Welcome to the show. Good afternoon. I'm excited to be here. Well, thank you for making the time out to speak to us. I understand that you're very, very busy, so we highly appreciate that. Um, I kind of wanted to, before we get into so many things that I want to talk about, um, a question which I've always wanted to ask any landscape architect, I feel like I can ask you, how did you decide to do landscape architecture? Is that something that just came to you one day? Or did it start off with architecture and then went down the road of landscape? How did that happen? Actually, I'm one of, I think I'm relatively rare breed in that it was always landscape architecture for me. When I was, believe it or not, when I was 10 years old, my birthday present was a garden pond. Um, That was my dream to actually create a place with a pond and the plants around it. So even when I was sort of 10 years old, I'd be out digging in the garden and making things and imagining new places and things like that. So that sort of developed. And by the time I was about maybe 14, I was, I was designing gardens for my parents' friends and and then building them in my summers. Um, and then when I was probably, yeah, when I was about 14, 15, went into a, um, uh, into, into school and they had a careers day and, uh, they fed all of our likes and dislikes into a big old computer. Cause this was in the, I guess, early nineties or mid nineties. Um, and they typed in all my likes and dislikes and it spat out. One of the answers was landscape architect. And so I asked my mum, what's, what's landscape architecture? And she, um, she actually arranged for me to go to the local council and be, um, an intern with the, uh, with the landscape architect, uh, there at the local council. And then I figured out that this is what I've always enjoyed doing. I just didn't have a name for it. Um, so from then on, I structured my studies according to, uh, landscape architecture uh, although for some reason I did maths, which I still don't really know why, um, cause it's very difficult. Um, but, uh, I structured my studies around that, went to Sheffield university, uh, got my BA, went to Chicago to do an internship as a landscape architect when I was about 20 years old. So I think that's where the seed of going overseas to work came from and then went back to Sheffield. And in 2001, I graduated, sorry, 2002, I graduated, uh, with my, it was a diploma then, but now it's a master's. Um, so yeah, I guess I always knew where I was going and what I was interested in, just didn't necessarily have a name for it. Right. That's very interesting because I'm assuming, I mean, this is again, for, forgive my ignorance in a lot of this episode, but I'm thinking that the landscape obviously back in say Sheffield and then Chicago, and then coming to a place like Dubai, for example, the landscape dramatically changes. So is it a big adaptation to move through all three? Because you're basically, I guess, learning new landscapes as you go through, or was it an easy sort of transition? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing that I would say is um, landscape is more than plants. I think that's a, right. a common misconception is that landscape, when we use the word landscape, people immediately think about plants. And that's a big part of what we do. And certainly from Chicago to Dubai, to the UK, they're all different groups of plants. There's some crossovers, but very few with Dubai and the UK, for example. Um, but the principles are the same, right. you know, that you create space, you uh, create connections and you 
one thing that I think landscape architects are particularly good at is thinking from a human scale. With all due respect, architects often focus upon, you know, my beautiful building. This and is often, very true. This and often refer true. to it as my building. This is very true. Um, <laughs> landscape architects, I think, think about, you know, the human experience, you know, and, and, and how are people going to use that space? What are they going to get from that space? The common misconception is that it's all about the planting but the skills that we learn are interchangeable. You know, the principles that I was applying when I was in Chicago of creating space uh, are still applicable when I'm in Dubai or in the UK. So the basic principles are, are the same. So therefore, all you need to do is really get more familiar with the plants in that region and also the local materials, same way you would as an architect. You know, if you're working in an area that has great quality stone in the local area, maybe you'll learn about the material material that is available and the properties of that stone. It's the same with landscape, with right. the softscape, that maybe you need to learn the plants of that region, but the principles are the same. Okay. Um, if I may then... This may just be a technicality, but it's again something which I've always wondered. What would be the difference between a designer who designs landscapes and a designer who designs public realm? Are they the same? Yes, they're the same. I mean, okay. certain people specialize. All right. You know, some people really like garden design, for example. All right. And you don't need to be a landscape architect to be a garden designer. All right. Uh, you can be. Uh, and actually, at Desert Inc., we do design larger scale gardens. Um, but public realm, generally, you're designing not for one person or for one family, for example. You're designing for all walks of life. So you have to be a bit more um, broad brush in what you do, and you have to try and accommodate the needs of as many of the population as you possibly can, right. rather than just cra crafting something for a particular person or a particular family. So people do sometimes specialize, um, right. but at Desert Inc., you know, we're involved from master planning communities and doing the landscape master plans, the strategy of where do you place open spaces, connections, pedestrian thoroughfares, cycle routes, park allocations, right from that, right the way down to somebody's garden or usually a palace in this region, uh, and how, what do they like to do in the mornings, in the evenings? Do they have big family gatherings, all of these things? And um, yeah, so there's somewhat different skills or different ends of the spectrum, but a landscape architect does all of those things. Right. Awesome. I mean, I feel like this is a big education for me and probably for most architects, I would think in the region, because I don't think a lot of architects really understand what goes into landscape design. I think, like you said, the first notion is to typically always you know, think about plants and a spec list of, you know, species and so on. But, but this is really interesting. Um, I kind of then want to pivot to um, pain points, uh, which landscape architects feel. Um, again, just from my pure ignorance, what I see with landscape is typically if, say, we were to do um, any project, uh, once it goes out to tender, the minute the first value engineer kind of, hammer has to drop it typically always falls on landscape or lighting or something like that that's what i see happening um apart from that do you as a landscape architect in this region have any other pain points that you see in this field um there's a few things um we find that projects are way more successful when we collaborate with the architects the engineers uh, the clients and the other rest, the rest of the team from day one or as close to day one as possible. When we inherit architectural layouts, building positioning, um, podium deck structures, things like that, when that's when we inherit that and it's already fixed, then we have our hands tied behind our back straight away. The amount of value we can actually add is then you know, cut down. It's still significant, but it's not as much as it could, could be, it be, particularly yeah. when you think about sustainability. Um, you know, I think, again, landscape architects, I think, are good. Let's say we know, we know a little bit about a lot. You know, we're generally less specialized, so we know about people movement. We know a bit about structure. We know a bit about architecture. We know about plants. We know about uh, servicing. Um, we know about people movement, um, traffic. You know, we know a little bit 
about all of these different things. So we're quite good at joining those those um, dots together. Um, but I think being brought on at the end of the process, and then we're often presented with fixed parameters, uh, and then it becomes put the parsley on the roast, as I always say. <laughs> you know, take the take this wonderful building that you know an architect has created, and then you know then put some green stuff around it but by by the way don't hide my building with your trees is another of, <laughs> another of my uh let's say uh, pain points um you know uh so so that that's definitely one you mentioned a big one which is the budget you know we'll often spend a lot of time designing you know we uh, the work that we do is 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 valuable but the problem is often that by the time the infrastructure has gone into the ground, the structures in in the ground and above ground, the facade is is almost completed. By the time all of those cost overruns have reared their heads, often the landscape budget, which typically uh, landscape is one of the last things to go in, along with lighting, signage, things right. like that. Often there is nowhere else to cut the budget or to do that value engineering. So we often get the brunt of such uh, decisions. So that's definitely uh, a, another pain point. And I would guess, I think in general, it's just that people often don't really understand the value uh, of landscape architecture and what we can do and how we can be useful. But I have to say it's changing. You know, we're, we're now being approached by developers to be the lead. You know, we've been the lead on several projects now and, and um, they they that allows us to ring fence the budgets for landscape it allows us to make sure that the space is for people not just about a big building that's a big sculpture with with rooms inside of it it's actually all about people so thankfully you know that perception is changing and that understanding of what we can what we can add to a project is 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 slowly filtering out there and you do see some big names now in landscape architecture and and there are some great projects like the High Line, for example, is a fantastic piece of yes. landscape architecture, landscape led that has literally transformed the, uh, the, the west side of New of New York. Yeah. So you know, and look at the land values now there. So it's a great um, a great thing to point to and say, well, look, this is what landscape architecture can do. It's not just plants, right? Um, I think yes, High Line is a very good example, but um, not to sort of shamelessly promote as a tank but oh no uh, please do <laughs> uh right next door because we're recording in d3 um the block i think is maybe one of the most successful not lawned green parks that i've seen when i say successful i'm saying it actually creates its own sort of space in a sense um and i think i love the fact that because again I myself, along with a lot of other people, I've seen D3 kind of progress from where it started. And those blocks have always ever just been there in a corner. And I myself have wondered what would eventually happen to it. Uh, and to see them be used in that project, I think was A, quite ingenious and by definition, quite sustainable that you actually thought of using that in your proposal. Um, my question to you is, does that ethos kind of carry into the entire design process in the sense that you're looking at opportunities, not just in the main sort of concept design stage, but you're even looking at opportunities uh, when you're doing site mockups and even, you know, during maybe operation maintenance, things like that? Yeah, I think in answer to your question, yes. Although the block looks very different from, for example, sustainability pavilion, the principles are the same in that, we go to the site, we look around us, what do we have? What assets do we have? Um, with the block, when we entered the competition to design the block, we we immediately you know, crossed the road from our studio here in D3 and we had a look around. And the big asset is, of course, the Dubai Water Canal, which at that time was empty, but was about to be filled. Um, and then the first thing we then said is, well, what are these great big blocks doing here? So we we found out that they were going to landfill. They were surplus from the construction of the canal. And then that led the design. That was our light bulb moment, you know, and, and using that material throughout the park is what won us the competition, gave the park its name, gave it its character. 
Um, so, you know, if you draw parallels with some of our other projects, we likewise look around and say, well, what do we have? And in Sustainability Pavilion, it was particularly about the native plants, local stones, um, uh, waste materials that we could recycle. So they look very different, but those that ethos of look around you, what assets do you have, um, that carries through all of them. Because I think Dubai's had a lot of criticism over the years. It's soulless, it's fake, it's all imported imported people, imported ideas, you know, imported materials. And, you know, we're very much fascinated by the local environment. Having been born and brought up somewhere else and I come to the desert when I'm 22, the desert fascinates me. The desert plants fascinate me. And this amazing city that's growing before my eyes, it fascinates me. So I think to to then, because of that fascination, then you actually see the assets. Whereas if you're born and bred here, perhaps you don't see the amazing landscape around you, the materials, you just see them as ordinary, you know? So I think that ethos of, of using what's around you will carry with us. If we expand into uh, different regions, different climatic zones, it will definitely carry with us and take a, take a pause, take a breath, look around. What do you have that you can use on the site or nearby the site? That should be your starting point. Right. Interesting. I mean, definitely that's the way it should be, no doubt. Um, and I'm glad to hear that that's, you know, the approach that you guys take. Um, a very obvious question which then comes to mind is, uh, I mean, for example, at the block and with sustainability pavilion and so on, um, when you're pushing ideas which haven't necessarily been done that way before, or maybe don't have a case study you can refer to, for example, um, how do you go about a convincing a client to go down that route? Because I mean, it is quite risky. I mean, there is a budget that has to be put behind it, a certain amount of risk that has to go behind it and so on. Uh, so how do you convince a client to go down that route and what's the kind of maybe research that you put behind it? Or I'm just trying to think, I mean, it takes a lot of guts to do something like that. And how do you go about doing it? Well, I would say all credit to the clients of those projects. You know, we can only do those things and have those ideas that are innovative if the client is open to it. You know, D3, great example. They were open to doing something different. That was the brief, do something different. If they had the brief of do a standard part with loads of grass everywhere, a few trees and what have you, then, you know, we wouldn't have really... Or we would we would have been expecting the client to make a major major leap of faith to what you now see uh, as the block. So you have to give credit to the clients that they actually have the vision to see that and and have the appetite for risk. That you know what we want something different. We've seen great parks around the country, but we want something different. We're going to hire the guys who think you know, we think can do that and deliver that. Right. So they took that risk. And I think with sustainability pavilion, the whole expo, the wider expo is about experimentation and leading the way to the future. So again, if we went to a client and said, oh, we would like to test out lots of native plants from the desert and the wadis on your project, most clients would run a mile because they don't want to be the guinea pig. So what sustainability pavilion and expo in the wider sense has done is it's given architects, landscape architects, lighting designers, all of these different uh, disciplines, a real case to actually experiment and try. And so again, you got to give the credit to the clients for having that vision and having that appetite for risk. Right. I think the sustainability pavilion is going to definitely be a game changer for a lot of, um, just species which clearly have existed here and continue to exist here. Um, which brings me to the topic, which I think still sort of captures my interest to date, uh, which was when the last time that I saw you speak and we just talked about it was this kind of vicious cycle that landscape architects face, um, which is you want to specify local flora and fauna, um, but that's not available for X, Y, Z reasons. 
And because it's not available, landscape architects don't specify them. And landscape architects don't specify them because they're not available and so on and so forth, thus being the vicious cycle. And I thought that that was such a simple explanation as to why perhaps there isn't this mass propagation of local species in the landscape scene here. Yes, that is kind of used as a sustainability pavilion, but I'm I'm curious, was there a lot of research on your end put before you execute something like sustainability pavilion? Did you actually see how these plants propagate, work, grow, maintain kind of their life cycle in this kind of environment? Yeah, well, you've touched upon a few things there. So first of all, um, yes, the, the the project is a is a vehicle for many things, one of which is experimenting with native plants. And we should highlight that this, the work, the, the, the plants that are now available because of Sustainability Pavilion, you know, we weren't the only people thinking about this. It's just that this project gave us the opportunity to, to pool the resources of lots of different experts from nursery growers to Julian Lee, the founder of Desert Group, was instrumental in giving us information and helping us to carve a plant palette. Um, we, it's not just Desert Inc. Desert, the Sustainability Pavilion is, is a stepping stone along the, the journey. And I think probably it's, at the moment, it's um, one of the best examples of how to use native plants in the region. It's not the only one, but I think it has a wide variety of native and adaptive plants in it. Um, in terms of research, um, so we started the design of Sustainability Pavilion in 2017. Uh, we knew that we wanted to showcase as many native plants as possible. At the time that we started the concept, we had no idea what those plants would be. We're all keen outdoor enthusiasts here at Desert Inc. And, you know, we've been on camping trips and taken pictures of the things growing in the wadis and on our hikes and all of these things. And so we had a, a rough library of of a list of what's this and how is it growing in the wadi. Um, so we then partnered with Desert Group, our sister companies in Wahat al-Sahra, their, their nursery, um, actually started to grow some of these plants because it gave, they saw, they'd been looking for a reason to commercially grow these plants. But if you just, without a project in hand, if you went to a plant nursery and said, oh, we, we think some of these desert plants and wadi plants might grow will you get the seed and test them for six eight months or even a year because maybe we might like to specify them well you can imagine okay. the answer right. well when we partnered with with uh, Wahat al-Sahra they've been looking for a reason to do this they've had the same thoughts so partnering with them under the guidance of Julian Lee you know the Desert Group founder you know we started to actually get the seed start um that process of of germinating them many of them actually didn't didn't work under cultivation um a lot of plants that grow in the desert they tend to be either very spiky and that lets them survive you know being overgrazed or they tend to be poisonous uh, or tend to um, emit chemicals into the soil that prevent other plants from growing close to them there's all sorts of amazing things that a lot of this we just didn't know, or we didn't know how each plant was going to respond. And but Wahat al Sahra in particular did a great job of of pioneering a load of this stuff. And and uh, we would go and uh, observe it and get feedback from them time to time. Um, but thankfully, a lot of these plants were a runaway success. And uh, and now because of because of this process, now they're growing more and more of these plants. Um, and we see loads of other designers now able to specify them. Right. And that's the whole point of Expo is it's a ripple effect, I think. Right. That it just, we're not going to save the world with the sustainability pavilion. But hopefully what we can do is demonstrate that these ideas work and maybe you should try them. And now these materials are available and you're not asking your client to be a guinea pig. You know, there is a case study. You can yes. go and see it. Yes. So are these, are these plants now um, available for, I mean, obviously they're available for commercial use for, you know, designers to, to, to specify them, but can say 
I mean, for lack of a better word, can can a common man go to you know the nursery and purchase these as well at the moment? Yes, although what, what's interestingly, it's been so successful that the Dubai municipality now are using these plants. You know that um, in Expo, wider Expo along the boulevards, the roads, in some of the other pavilions, because of the work that we did with Sustainability Pavilion, already those plants have been installed throughout Expo. So even within Expo, it's had a ripple effect and beyond. And so it is actually, some of these plants now are very difficult to get hold of because they've all been snapped up basically. <laughs> but if there's a demand, there will be a supply. So right. um, that's a major success for, for us. And I think everyone involved in Desert Inc., Wahat al Sahra, the Eden Project from the UK, Eden International were involved in this as well, helping us to select plants, suggesting plants. Um, everyone involved, it, everyone's so happy that this ripple effect has already started making its waves across the wider landscapes of this region and hopefully other regions too. I'm sure, I'm sure. I mean, I can, it's, it's, it's very clear to see the, the passion that, you know, you yourself and Desert Inc. and all the all the collaborators that you work with as well um the fact that it was such a great success i think is definitely a feather in your guys's cap um i kind of want to talk a bit more about landscape uh but not necessarily about plants i don't know if that's the right term i'm using but um i've recently become a big fan of seriescaping seriescaping I'm not really sure what the term is, but I know what it is. Um, and I think there's a lot of designers out there, again, architects who maybe visually can recognize it, but don't know what it is. Um, if you can maybe give us a bit of a history lesson as to what this is, why it looks the way that it does, and why it's, I guess, trending at the moment with a lot of projects. Yeah, sure. So um, in the past, in this region... I think it's fair to say that um, most people, most projects, they were always looking to recreate something from elsewhere. So it might be make my resort or my garden or my palace or whatever, make it look like Hyde Park, make it look like uh, you know New, uh, New York Central Park, lots of grass, lots of trees. They were always focused on trying to recreate something they'd seen elsewhere, which was predominantly green, overwhelmingly green. Uh, and it can be done. That's the thing. It can be done. And there are examples of it all around town that we all know. Um, Xeriscape um, is, is, is not something we've invented. Of course, you know, it's very popular in uh, parts of Australia, parts of California, Arizona, Texas, many places where they have low rainfall. Um, so the, the principle of it is you don't need to only rely upon plants and green stuff to make a wonderful place. You can rely on other things. Um, and so it's about using local materials. It could be the local stone, um, for example, and it might be, it will have plants, but those plants will require a fraction of the amount of water that your high park recreation <laughs> requires in our region here in the desert. Right. Um, as I say, it can be done, but it requires a lot of water and attention. So. Um, really, that's what Xeriscape is about. It's it's about making uh, landscape with minimal water, or in some cases, no water. Um, and that's in relation to particularly irrigation. Uh, in this region, you know, if you look around the, the roads, the parks, if we switch off the water or water runs out or there's some issue, within three days, a lot of those plants will really be suffering. You know, within three weeks, many of them will be dead. Uh, within three months, almost all of them will be dead. So, you know, we've effectively got plants on a life support machine. And if anyone ever switches that off because of scarcity of water or one reason or another, um, then, you know, a lot of what we know as landscape in this region will, will just cease to exist. So really, Xeriscape is about well, how can we get closest to that point where those plants, those landscapes will survive if we do turn off the taps or we reduce it by 90%? Um, and it's an experimental process, you know, with sustainability pavilion, you know, some of those plants at first, we overwatered them. We actually have to, had to turn down the dial 
you know, and it's, it's a learning process. Um, but our aim is to keep going down and down and down and reducing the water requirements as much as possible, because a lot of these plants haven't been cultivated before or in the, uh, to this extent. So we simply don't know how, how low can they go, but, uh, we take our cues from the deserts and the wadis and the mountains where these plants grow. Well, they grow there with maybe one burst of water every two years, three years. Well, surely then if we irrigate them in that way, then surely they could, you know, survive in the, the same way. Uh, given that often in the deserts and the mountains and the wadis, they are surviving, maybe not thriving, but, you know, they may not be in a, in a, a way that we want them to look exactly like that. So right. we give them a little bit of water um, right. and then they look fantastic with a fraction of what we've, what we've got here. Right. So it's basically in a nutshell, dry landscape. That's what you could say Xeriscape is and means. Right. Um, I think a very good example of that is again, another project which Desert Inc has worked on, which is uh, the Alfaya Lodge down in Maleha. Um, I thought the landscape there was so acutely designed that I don't think it can work anywhere else and with no other building. And I thought that that was brilliant. Was that again, something which was a client initiative that that's the direction they wanted to go down? Um, it was a collaboration between the, the client, which was Sharuk, you know, they wanted something different. Um, they'd identified the site collaboration with them, uh, an architect, which is the architect for the project, um, and ourselves. Um, the typical approach for uh, hospitality hotels in this region is green, luxury. Luxury means green. Green means right. luxury. Uh, throwing water everywhere. Tropical usually is what they go for, particularly the beach resorts. Now, this is at the foot of the Hajar Mountains where these wonderful red dunes meet the stone of the mountain. So straight away upon visiting the site, you can see if we put green lawns and, you know, tropical plants and trees here, it, it, it wouldn't just be irresponsible. It'd be ridiculous actually. Um, so we knew then that, okay, let's, let's, let's try and use, um, as many native or adaptive species as we can. And if you actually look at the plant list there, we were trialing, this was done before sustainability pavilion. We tried out a few species, um, the native species that were available in the nurseries. Um, but predominantly those are adaptive plants because that's all we had to work with at that time. Um, the project wasn't big enough to warrant nurseries growing these plants specifically. So we use plants that are from particularly other regions that are also uh, lacking in water and, you know, desert regions and things. So that's a combination of native plants and, and adaptive um, plants. Um, the plant palette from that then developed a lot with sustainability pavilion. And the great thing is about the desert regions is if you notice, if you, if you ever go camping, if you go camping a week after the rain or maybe two weeks after the rain, this sort of annual rainfall we tend to have, then you'll see that the, the, the desert actually starts to turn green, green. and yeah. it really does. And it's just one rainfall event usually that does this. Um, so what we've found is that through our irrigation systems at Alfire, a lot of the native seed bank, which is just seeds that are sitting dormant in the sand, start to germinate because there's a little bit of water around all of a sudden. So actually, although we planted mostly adaptive plants, not native, a lot of natives have since moved in because, oh, there's some water over here. So it's right. just rained, you know, so, so then they set down their roots and they start to grow. So it's an interesting process to see uh, how that works, but we really didn't want this kind of line of, oh, this is the hotel boundary. The this idea is where it starts and this is where it ends. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So it sort of fuses away from where there's a little bit of irrigation to where there's no irrigation because people don't go to the desert to look at tropical plants. They go there to look at the stars, look at the dunes, you know, feel like uh, isolated in many ways. They don't need to be surrounded by tropical, you know, swaying palms and things like that. Right, right. And, and you don't even need to go that far. I mean, because, uh, my, my parents actually stay in Murdiff, uh, which is, which is not too far away from the city. Uh, and I noticed the same thing. The, the minute that first annual rainfall happens, uh, you just look across the road and what was initially barren suddenly has like this little hue of, you know, green fuzz kind of <laughs> growing along the side, which I never knew that there's 
literal seeds yeah. all around. Yeah, they call it a seed bank. So it's it's in the soils, ready ready to go. It's just when it gets some water, it jumps into into life. And and really, it's been I've been here since two thousand and two, and I've noticed this driving around the roads, particularly the desert roads in the Emirates. When you drive on these roads, you'll always see some scraps of greenery at the side of the road. And it's always, always sort of wondered, well, what is that? And, and everyone tells me we have to irrigate plants here. Well, how are they growing that? How are they, you know, managing to survive and spread in those areas? So that's really always been an interest. And thankfully, the Sustainability Pavilion and, and the Alfire Lodge and, and these kind of projects came about. And luckily, as I say, our clients wanted to experiment with those things. So it's it's great to be able to test those ideas now. Awesome. Awesome. I'm going to ask you, um, I mean, it's a it's it's again a very ignorant question, but I'm I'm trying to add value to as many architects like myself as as you can imagine. Um could you maybe tell us um maybe three to four species which can be substituted into most designs that are being done at the moment. What I mean by that is instead of using a palm tree, you could look at this. Instead of using a bougainvillea, you could look at this, that kind of thing, which maybe if someone just hears it and just needs to know that species can kind of then send them down the right route. Sure. Yeah. Um, one of my favorites um, that we've recently started planting through sustainability is called Aerva javanica. Um, this was growing in an empty car park opposite my local Carrefour, and I was watching oh. it growing <laughs> and in just a dusty lot. And uh, when we brought it into cultivation, it's amazing. And interestingly, there's a story attached to so many of these native plants. And the one for Aerva is they, they call it desert cotton. And apparently um, the flower heads um, were used in the old days to um, basically stuffed pillows. So they, hence they call it desert, yes. desert cotton. That's a great plant. Um, and, uh, I would recommend it. It's, uh, it, it has a lovely flower, a sort of pale creamy flower, um, silvery green leaves. Uh, definitely recommend that. Another plant that we actually pioneered at the block. And I think it's the first time anyone's ever planted it in, uh, or cultivated it in an urban setting It's called Leptodenia. Uh, Leptodenia pyrotechnica. Um, and uh, the pyrotechnica is because when it flowers, it has this amazing yellow, a sea of yellow flowers. So hence pyrotechnics. Yes. Um, so um, that's been a brilliant plant. I'd recommend that. That's a bigger plant that will grow to sort of three meters um, uh, high. Uh, it's a great screening plant. Um, okay. In, in the block, the kids like to make little burrows and nests in it, which I love. <laughs> um, so it's good for um, playgrounds as well in that respect. Um, uh, some of the trees as well, a lot of what? Well, I would say that out of all of the natives, there were more native trees available than uh, perennials and shrubs and grasses before we started these, these uh, journeys into native plants. You know, people have been planting acacias, for a long time, it's a native tree, as you all know. There's many different types of, uh, of acacias, but I would recommend um, acacias, depending on the, the situation. Some of them have extremely scary thorns, and that's how they survive against the camels and grazing animals. Um, but uh, some of them don't. Um, that would be a, a you know the acacia species is 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 a great one to create create shade, very resilient, uh, very hardy. Um, I would say um, there's another one called limonium, a low growing, let's say 20 centimeters high uh, plant, beautiful um, pinkish flowers. Uh, it can replace your, so let's say, standard ground covers, the petunias that, yes. you know, the, the municipality group. like to plant, those sorts of things. Um, yeah, um, so there's, there's, there's many, the list right. goes on. Um, thankfully, there are a lot that actually I could suggest. No, but those those automatically, I think, um, for the listeners, open up just so many new doors because they've probably not seen of them, not heard of these, don't know the names or the stories of them. And I think now that they do, they'll definitely, you know, want to go down that road and explore it, which which is awesome. I hope so. Uh, I know that I'm definitely going to be one of them <laughs> for, for, for sure. 
Um, Duncan, I, I, I don't want to ask you um, kind of then from a larger scale from the point of Desert Inc., maybe even Desert Group for that matter. Um, could you maybe walk us through one particular project, uh, any project of any scale, any intervention, uh, which was obviously maybe quite challenging to start off with, but was an overwhelming success at the end? Well, I, I think probably, although we've talked about it before, I would suggest that we talk about the block because it's a, it's a nice story um, and uh, there's many different things to, to, to go into. So the, the, the story of the block is that we had, we had formed Desert Inc. in just 2015 in the Dubai Design District. And in 2016, we were invited, uh, along with many other international landscape practices, to take a look at this piece of land between D3, the existing buildings, and the canal. And um, our first um, our first move was to go to the site, which is easy because it's on our doorstep. We walked the site with the client, found the concrete blocks, which are left over from the Dubai Water Canal. Um, we asked the client, uh, what are you doing with them? Um, the client said, don't worry, we'll be removing them. They'll be going to landfill. They're a surplus material. We had a light bulb moment and we said, well, can we keep them? And uh, myself and the, the the lead designer were big Lego fans when we were growing up as kids. And as I think a lot of <laughs> architects are, and uh, we imagined this park there and then as, well, this is a Lego park. We can stack these things. We can use them to build walls, play features, um, uh, direct the flow of people around. They can cast shade because we walked between these things and they were stacked maybe three or four levels high. And the space between was totally shaded and it was noticeably cooler. So all of these ideas came to us there and then. So then we went back to the studio, got onto SketchUp and started moving these blocks around. And then the design for the competition was, was just that. It was um, our first sort of foray into arranging these blocks. Client loved the, the idea, thankfully, selected us um, on the project. Initially, the, the brief for the competition was this is a space that in the future will house boutique hotels. Um, on the master plan. So we don't want to put lots of money and infrastructure in the ground right. to then be removed in five years or so. Um, so that put a different spin on things. So there was this kind of recycling brief that we set ourselves actually that, well, if we're going to do this for five years, we need to make sure that when it's time is done, you can lift this up and hopefully move it somewhere else or at the very least use these materials on the next project so that's the reason for the flooring being block pave. You know, right. uh, you can lift it up, you can reuse it. Um, the uh, the even the architectural features that they are recycled shipping containers that can easily be lifted up right. and, and reset in a in a future location. So everything in there was then defined by that relatively short term lifespan. Another thing that that um, dictated the planting selection, if you've noticed. There are no trees down there. There's yes. only palms. Yes. The reason for that is that trees, as you'll know, if you plant a tree now in this region, after five years, it might look like something. It might give you some shade and really come into its own. Um, we don't have five years. We need something instant, right. like many projects in right. this region. Um, so we use palms because they're instant. And we said, but what about shade? We need more shade. Trees give us shade much more effectively than palms. So then the idea of, well, let's let's use a lightweight, low-cost material to string between the palms, like a canvas, let's say, to shade people. And then this idea of, well, military camouflage netting is exactly that. It shades people. It can tolerate huge wind load, but doesn't need to be attached to these massive anchored right. um, uh, architectural pillars and things right. like that. So that's why you see that there's a, there's a military-grade camo fabric, although it's bright purple <laughs> and, and green, of course, because those were the colors of D3 at the time. So, so yeah, that, that temporary nature, which was the brief of the project, then led to all of these design decisions being made that what happens at the end of the lifespan of this park, and that then drove the design 
And I think I'm a big believer in, we're all a big believer at Desert Inc. that, you know, constraints, um, they drive innovation. So the fact that you can't do what you normally do actually forces you to do something completely different. And that's great. We love that. So when we come up against the constraint that maybe other people will scratch their heads at and, and, you know, they'll feel overwhelmed by it, we love it because we know that it will force us to do something different. And that different approach will then define that project. Awesome. I think anyone listening to this episode thus far, um, is really, really motivated and energized right now because I know I am. Um, kind of as like a, as a fun question to wrap up the episode. Um, I know that you had a few questions about this, but I'll ask it anyway. Um, it's, it's, it's a question which is relatively open-ended and we like to ask it to our guests just to see where their headspace is at regarding this topic. Uh, the question is of course, the utopian question. This is um, picture your favorite client who comes to you and says, hey, Duncan, here's a plot of land that I have. Here's pretty much a blank check with all the resources you may need in terms of consultants, budgets, whatever, whatever, whatever. But the only kind of design criteria that you have for this project is that it be able to give back to the city in some way, form, shape, or the other. Um, you can think about an answer. Or I know the answer. Oh, you know the answer. You can just go for it straight on. <laughs> so my, my response would be, give me Dubai. The whole city give, of Dubai. Give, <laughs> give, give Dubai to Desert Inc. We have been talking about just everyday spaces, everyday things that we can do to improve the city for ourselves and everyone else who lives here. You know, in fact, we're very, we're delighted to say we're involved in this vision 2040, which actually is all about simple things like being able to walk to work, being able to cycle to work, being able to reach a park within your neighborhood, all of these relatively simple things, which are not glossy and shiny and uh, those things, but that's really, really fundamental to making people happier because 2040 is geared around measuring and improving happiness, not GDP. It's measuring the success of a city through happiness, which I think is a brilliant way to recalibrate and then give you a reason to do all of these things. Because if you think about Dubai, Dubai is predominantly an expat city these days. We're all from somewhere else, uh, but we consider it, you know, our, our city. We've yeah. been part of this city, um, and we we need to keep people here. I need a reason to stay here and it can't be, I'll get paid more. It can't be that. That's not enough. It needs to be more than that. And it needs to be that I want to be here. Now, myself, I do want to be here because I've got many reasons for being here. I love the, the work. I love the environment and the free time aspects. But everyone else who's who's here for a paycheck how do you turn this city into somewhere that they're not here for a paycheck they're here because they love the city and a lot of that is not another mega mall or another eight lane highway it's actually how can i cycle from home to work how could i drop my kids off at school on my bike um could I go for a workout on the corner in a pocket park in my neighborhood and meet other people from my neighborhood? Could I do that? When I'm driving around, um, do I see bits of nature? Do I see urban wilderness? You know, uh, like, does everything have to look so polished? No, it doesn't. Maybe we can, you know, we can give pl plots of land and let some of these native plants go wild and create a wilderness garden. It's all of these things about connectivity, um, about nature, exposure to nature. You know, there's a lot of studies out there that, that urban greenery is very important and makes people happier. Urban wilderness has a much bigger effect, positive effect on people. Um, so not only is it green, but it feels like I've escaped the city. So could there be elements of urban wilderness there? Can we create cycle lanes? Can we prioritize people and mobility devices and cycles over the car, you know, can we do all of these things? And I think that's what vision 2040 is 
largely about making people happier. And so, yes, giving giving Dubai to Desert Inc. to strategize <laughs> these things, that's a dream for us. And even if we could make some small incremental wins, please <laughs> give us the opportunity. <laughs> Well, if anyone listening knows anyone who can do anything about that, <laughs> please get on it. Um, no, but Duncan, in, in, in all seriousness, uh, I'm actually quite, quite happy to report that over the last eight to 12 episodes, perhaps, everyone who's answered this question has pretty much been in that ballpark, has been uh, urban planners who want to have small scale interventions, um, shaded bus stops smaller public pocket parks, um, outdoor gyms, but basically stuff which kind of connects these nodes, which otherwise have no connection, connecting these urban islands, you know, sustainable city and Arabian ranches right next to each other. But to get from one to the other, I have to take a two kilometer drive to kind of drive through the highway and then, you know, get back to them. Just simple things like that um, is what everyone's talking about. And it, it's, so awesome to hear that that's exactly kind of pretty much the same language that, that, that you're talking about as well. Um, as kind of like the absolute final question, um, again, for designers kind of looking to implement things as quickly as they possibly can in their projects and so on, what's the one word of advice you can give, not to landscape architects, but to, I guess, this regular old architects like myself, um, in order to improve, well, obviously the, their design, but even the landscape and their design. I would say, think about people. We're all people. Um, I think it's easy to get caught up in a big facade design or something very uh, uh, polished, but actually think about the human experience of being at the foot of that building or in the plaza outside there, put yourself in the shoes of that person, not a big hero shot rendering, nothing like that. Think about actually what is it like as a human being at the foot of that building. And right. I think that will improve every bit of architecture that's out there. Stop designing massive sculptures, start designing buildings for people, and maybe then there's a focus on you know, the human level of interaction. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Duncan. On behalf of the show, we really, really appreciate you taking time out for us to do this. Um, it's only because of people like you that the show really exists. Um, so thank you very much. And on that note, we will see all of you guys next week. Thank you so much. Thanks again. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Fellow A-formers, thank you guys for listening. Thank you guys for being part of our journey and thank you for the immense support we've been receiving for our episodes. It has and continues to be a very bumpy road, but we wouldn't want it any other way. If you enjoyed this episode and it brought you value, please share this episode with anyone who may benefit from it. But of course, if you loved the episode, follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn, send us a little DM and we may just send you a secret link to a secret episode which we've been working on. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. See you next time. Keep sketching.